This podcast is the next in our Ask a Scientist series, as well as the first in our Research in Action series. I'm Dr. Atos Sarajadini, Dean of the Charles E. Schmidt College of Science at Florida Atlantic University. And I have Dr. Rindy Anderson, Professor of Biology in our Department of Biological Sciences at FAU. I would like to interview her in a few minutes. Before I do that, as I've done in the previous segments of Ask a Scientist, I want to begin by talking about what science is. Well, in a nutshell, science is a tool to better understand the natural world. Now, how does it work? How does it operate? How is it a tool? Well, there are three steps to the scientific method. First, we ask a question. We then go out and gather data or observations that are relevant to answering the question. Those observations then lead to an explanation or a theory that explains the observations. And every good theory makes a prediction. Predictions are then tested with the observations um, or the data to see if they come true. If the predictions come true, then the explanation or theory is probably correct. If they don't, we have to go back and redo the explanation and get a better theory for what we're observing with the data. And in this way, science is a self-correcting process. The self-correction might take a long time. It may take years or decades, but it eventually does happen because we're always testing the theories, their predictions, with the observations. And that's what makes the scientific method unique. These predictions, they represent a test of the theory or the model. So in what I've said so far, I've answered the question of what is scientific research, but what is research in general? Well, the answer to that is that research is systematic work undertaken to increase the amount of knowledge that we have. This includes all kinds of knowledge, not just about the natural world, which is science, but also about technology, culture, society, economics, philosophy, and art. There is research that we are doing in all of those fields and more. And in some cases, this new knowledge that we are gathering and acquiring can be used to develop new applications. Furthermore, research can look different in each of these areas. There are many similarities, but there's also many differences. How we do research and gather knowledge in the area of culture would be different than how we do it in the area of science. Now, returning to my guest today, Dr. Rindy Anderson, I'd like to first ask her to tell us something about the research that she does and how it fits into the scientific method. Rindy, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So I study animal behavior. I'm a behavioral ecologist, and that means that I try to understand how and why animals do the things that they do. Right? We go out into the natural world, like you said in your introduction. Science is here to help us understand the natural world. I go out in the natural world and confronted all the time with strange and amazing and wonderful behaviors that animals do. And so part of my job is to seek to understand why are they doing that particular behavior? How did it develop within the life of an individual? And what's it good for? Right? What's its value to the animal? And I use the social behaviors of songbirds as a way to study that. So the data you would gather would then be their behavior. Correct. I would like to hear more about how that is gathered and what kind of quantitative information you have. 
for these songbirds. Yeah. So I study songbirds both in the laboratory because that's a controlled environment where we can manipulate different aspects of behavior, looking at hormones, looking at developmental processes. Pretty tough to do some of those things in the wild, right? So we look at animals in, in the lab, and then we also take those questions out into the field, and we study wild animals in their natural environments, interacting with each other, interacting with the environment, right? And so one way that I study that is to look at the vocal communication systems of songbirds and to ask the question, what information is contained in these vocal signals? How are males exchanging this information? How are females using this information to select which male to mate with? And so we can go out and we can quantify behaviors and we can quantify behavioral responses to stimuli that we put in the environment. Now that we know the data you're gathering and a sense of the questions you're trying to answer, I'd like to know how your data then leads to an explanation or a theory or theories that explain the observations. Right. So let me give you one example of that from from research that I uh, published with an undergraduate here at, at FAU. So we went out into the field and studied the vocal behavior of male Bachman sparrows. Male Bachman sparrows use their elaborate song repertoires. They have many, many song types. They use them both to compete with each other and to get females to mate with them, right? And in addition to the very loud songs that males sing, they sing other types of calls and songs, but we also notice that they sing what we call whisper song. Right, and so in a, in it, so you, you've got this male who's up on a tree shouting and shouting and shouting, but then if we would go onto his territory and play song, conspecific song, songs that are from his species, from one of his neighbors, for example, he would whisper in response to that. So now we have this observation, right, and we have a hypothesis. We think that this whisper song is a threat because we're observing it only in the context of us going on and simulating, you're provoking the male by playing song on his territory. So now our hypothesis is now, whisper song is a threat signal. Now we have to design an experiment to address that. The prediction would be that if we go onto a male's territory and we play a whole lot of songs, like eight minutes long, that the males who sing whisper song are more likely to attack the little model of a Bachman sparrow that we put next to the speaker, right? Because if, if whisper song is a threat, those males are going to follow that threat up with violence, right? So now we have this prediction. Males who sing more whisper songs should be more likely to attack the model. Males who stick and sing mostly the loud song should be less likely to attack the model. Now we have a prediction. We can go and test that, which Saba and I did in the field, and our prediction was upheld. In fact, males who sang the most whisper songs were the most aggressive. So that's a very good example of what I've pointed out in our previous segments about how scientists gather evidence in favor of a particular model or explanation or hypothesis as opposed to proving various uh, aspects of our work. I made the point earlier that in a previous segment that um, mathematicians prove things. They have theorems, axioms, corollaries, etc. And those uh, proofs, they last and stand the test of time for a long time. Whereas scientists, we provide evidence in favor or against a particular theory or explanation. And this, this would be an example of that. I'd like to hear more about 
the theories and explanations that are prevalent in your field, Rindy, and how over time our understanding of their uh, validity and robustness has changed. Right. So one example of that would be how scientists, how uh, ornithologists and behavioral ecologists have thought about why some songbird species sing such large, elaborate repertoires and why other songbird species don't. They seem to manage the same behaviors of attracting a female and fighting with a male with only one or two song types. And yet species like my Bachman sparrow sing 40 or 50 song types. How do we explain this? Why does this male need so many song types, right? And so it, traditionally, or you know, several decades ago, the prevailing wisdom was that these, this elaboration was due to female choice for bigger, better, and showier males. So the more song types a male had, the more likely females were to mate with him. And so then over time, we see that males end up having more song types, right? It's like the peacock's tail. The peacock's tail is an ornament that's there because females like big showy tails, right? So can we apply that same logic to elaborate repertoires? And so that was a prevailing wisdom for quite some time. Then other researchers who are out in the field studying how males are using their songs to fight with each other and to mediate disputes started to make discoveries to point us in the direction that, in fact, some of this elaboration can be explained by the armament hypothesis, right, that song is actually a weapon, that it's actually a way to direct threats at specific individuals, and it's a way to mediate disputes. The more complexity you have in your vocal repertoire, the easier it's going to be to communicate with your rival. And so then the pendulum swung in that direction because of the data, because of the evidence and the hypotheses we were accumulating in favor of the male-male competition or the armament hypothesis, right? And so this is an example of how thoughts have shifted over time about which, which factor is more important in, gu in guiding a particular behavior. Very interesting point, Rindy. I appreciate that. In our earlier discussion also, you told me about how males are the ones that sing in the northern birds, whereas when you go further south, females also get into the act. I'd like to learn more about how or what we know about that phenomenon as well. Absolutely. So for the longest time, the prevailing wisdom was it's the males that sing. If you look at the several hundred or, or actually thousands of species of songbirds across the world, it's the male that's singing because he's the one that's fighting to defend the territory and he's the one that's, that's wooing the female with these songs. And in some cases, we would notice that females sang as well. We would make that observation, but that was the exception to the rule. And so we thought, ah, in songbirds, song originated with males and females have never needed song to accomplish their, their biological directives, right? So then what, what was then discovered through some population genetics work, through some, some work on how species change over time, it was discovered that, in fact, if you look in the tropics where songbirds originated, right, that females sing just as much in males. If you go species by species, the females sing as well. And in some cases, the females sing more than the males do. And so they did a very careful analysis of the songbird radiation as it came out of the tropics and went further north. And they found that, in 
fact, the ancestral condition was that both males and females sang in songbirds and that female song was lost over time as species moved further north. And that's why in the northern climates, in North America, Canada, females don't sing as much. In the tropics, they are singing like crazy. That's fascinating work, uh, Rindy. Um, we've been speaking to Professor Rindy Anderson, Florida Atlantic University. Thank you very much for joining us today. And before I sign off, I want to ask our listeners, we'd love to know what you think of these uh, podcasts. I would invite you to send your uh, feedback to us by visiting our webpage at science.fau.edu. Thank you very much. Thank you.